Hello and welcome to another episode of the IT Pro Podcast. I'm Adam Shepard. And I'm Jane McCallion. So this episode is, of course, going out on Valentine's Day. Now, I'm not much of a Valentine's-y person, really, myself. Um, I don't know, call it the you know, kind of socialist in me or whatever, but I uh, I just don't go in for all the, the chocolates and the flowers and the buying stuff. Um, but we will be sharing the love with our uh, audience by talking about cybersecurity uh, later on. But first, let's get some news out of the way. So there's been quite a lot going on this week. Uh, so without further ado, let's launch straight into, I think, the most interesting story of the year so far for me. Uh, Mobile World Congress is officially cancelled. Yes, for the first time in its 14-year history, the uh, GSMA, which runs the uh, annual Congress, has cancelled it uh, over fears of the uh, novel coronavirus that's caused the uh, epidemic that's mainly centred in uh, Wuhan, China, but we're also starting to get some cases over here in Europe. Mm. So the decision by the GSMA was preceded by a raft of major exhibitors at the show announcing that they were uh, pulling out over health and safety concerns, essentially. So AWS pulled out, Facebook, Nokia, LG. Sony. Yeah, a whole raft of companies. Yeah, I think, well, we'd been discussing it during the week, and I think other people had as well, which was uh, effectively if all these major exhibitors were pulling out, regards for health and safety aside, was it even tenable to have a Congress with, like, no exhibitors? Well, it's worth noting that although the major exhibitors uh, were pulling out, there are a lot of smaller companies and startups and whatnot who invest, you know, quite substantial sums of money in attending the Congress, you know, for the purposes of networking and, you know, meeting new partners and all of this kind of stuff. And those uh, those smaller companies are likely to be left kind of high and dry now. Uh, you know, they've sunk, a, they've sunk a ton of money into attending the show. And for the likes of Facebook and Sony, you know, that's a that's a sunk cost and kind of, you know, it's a it's a shame, but whatever. Yeah. But for these for these smaller companies, that could have a, a real impact on them. Yeah, I wonder if they'll be able to kind of do anything about that in terms of compensation or whatever. But you know, the other thing that um, is you know, that needs to be remembered with this kind of uh, conference is that you know, GSMA will have paid for it a year in advance as well. Um, something else that I have seen as well, actually, on Twitter this morning was somebody asking, well, what about other conferences over the course of this year? Yeah, are we going to cancel all of them as well because you've got to you know, have lots of people together in a, a contained environment, a large but contained environment, um, you know, have people on planes coming over. You know, Cubicon is coming up in uh, March or April. And, uh, you know, is that going to be cancelled because of, you know, fears over the virus? And um, it's difficult. It's also not the first time. It's the first time that GSMA has cancelled MWC over such a thing. And, and everybody seems really quite concerned. But MWC has been going on during when we had SARS. It's been going on during when we had Ebola. And everybody was freaking out about those as well. And, you know, I'm not kind of diminishing 
anything for the people who are affected or saying, you know, uh, it's just like having a cold or anything like that. But, it's, you know, it's it's not the Black Death either yet. No, um, but I think, you know, it's it's wise to take precautions, especially with an outbreak with this kind of level of virality. Yes, yeah, um, definitely. I mean, we're not doctors, so we can't really say. I, you know, cited SARS, I've heard it's more virulent but less deadly, deadly than that. But at the same time, it's not been going on for as long. Either way, we're going to still see all the um, all the launches, even if they're not all happening in the same place, um, you know, in smaller kind of launches, really. Yeah, I think it will certainly be uh, one to watch. The conference schedule this year could be uh, a lot slimmer than it than it usually is in terms of global events. So moving on, also this week, uh, politicians in the UK have decided that artificial intelligence doesn't need its own regulator. Mm. This is a decision by the government select committee that was looking into the issue. Um and I think it's a particularly interesting one. What they've recommended, essentially, is that the UK doesn't need a specific regulator to deal with AI as a whole, but that existing regulators should be looking at how they can deal with AI as it affects their remits. What's your take on this? Because I actually think it's eminently sensible. Yeah, I do as well. Um, I was initially expecting to disagree with the decision, but actually AI is such a broad and sweeping area that it kind of makes no sense to have one overall regulator for AI. It's like having a regulator for the internet. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, DCMS. But uh, yeah, I was kind of thinking the same, that the question here is not... um, it's not the technology in and of itself. It's how it's applied. So, and how it's applied varies by sector. You know, varies wildly. Um, so, it makes sense to have regulations and oversight at that level rather than yeah, trying to broad brush it. Yeah, exactly. Because especially when you think about the ways that AI is being applied in terms of banking, uh, in terms of finance, in terms of dealing with sensitive data sets in a lot of cases, but also in terms of dealing with, you know, like employment decisions and hiring and whatnot. Also policing and that kind of thing when there has already been some controversy. Exactly. Um, you know, it's there is no way that a an overall AI regulator would have the granularity and the kind of deep familiarity with those areas that it would need to make informed decisions about the use of AI in those areas. Sure. I mean, the next question, though, is do all these regulators within the um, the different separate areas, uh, the people who have oversight, do they have the necessary knowledge and understanding to to deal with this? I mean, they're going to have to upskill quite quickly, I think, because the reality is that AI is being rolled out in these areas. And if regulators don't get their finger out and start properly analysing and tracking how it's being used and making judgment calls about its use, then, you know, it's just going to be left unchecked. Yeah. And I mean, I think back to, um, you know, you're talking about finance and banking uh, many years ago, not that many years ago, but several years ago, um, 
there was the algorithm that suddenly caused a currency crash and it was so complex nobody understood why um so yeah we've already seen some of these problems with bias and that kind of thing so yeah i i think that this is a sensible move although i will you know, as always be interested to see where it goes in practice yeah same here and our final story is uh, one that I'm sure uh, we've all been watching closely. Um, it's the Equifax story, our old friend rearing its head <laughs> once again. Um, the staple of our first few episodes, Equifax. Um, so the US Department of Justice has formally charged four members of the Chinese military with carrying out the uh, breach on Equifax, the credit agency that occurred back in 2017. Yeah. So in this breach, uh, just to remind everyone, uh, the sensitive information of uh, 150 million plus US customers was stolen, plus some additional ones uh, elsewhere. Uh, this included you know, names, uh, social security numbers, which you know, is quite meaningful in the US, it's you know less meaningful here. Um it was it was a very big deal. Now you know, it was a big deal. This to me is is largely symbolic because China's not gonna hand over for you know military people because the US says that they did a thing. Yeah, I mean the US has repeatedly in the past charged uh, hackers from North Korea, from China, from Russia, from various places. And, you know, nothing officially ever comes of it. You know, they're never extradited. They're never tried in the US. It's a it's a symbolic gesture more than anything. Yeah, I mean, this is it that you know, not only are they not extradited, I don't think an extra extradition request is ever actually put in. No. I mean, um, it, it would be, you know, pretty, pretty much entirely pointless to actually submit one. The key thing for me about this story is that just because it was carried out by the Chinese military doesn't mean that the attack was sophisticated in any kind of meaningful way. It should not be forgotten that Equifax had gaping fundamental holes in its security and it wasn't a sophisticated APT that they could have done that they couldn't have done anything about you know it wasn't outside of their control to have defended against it was basic basic stuff that they did not do yeah i mean if you leave all the doors and windows open in your house and all the valuables you know, in clear display then yeah you know, somebody's going to come across and nick them uh, that's my that's my house analogy for today. Yeah, I think symbolic symbolic or not, uh, it is you know it's nice to see somebody being charged for the breach, especially as it you know affected so many people. Um, but yeah, it's worth remembering that just because it's an APT doesn't mean you can afford to neglect the basics. Well, we are going to take a quick break now, but when we are back, we will be speaking to Kevin Fielder, who is the Chief Information Security Officer at Just Eat. See you after the break. For trustworthy help to live a financially secure life, make more money, and keep more of the money you make, follow the time-tested wealth-building strategies in Kiplinger's Personal Finance magazine. 
It's the magazine that started the entire field of personal finance journalism more than 60 years ago. Since then, Kiplinger's personal finance has helped millions of readers achieve financial security in any economic climate. New subscribers save 79% off the cover price. Visit store.kiplinger.com today. That's store.kiplinger.com. Welcome back. We are now joined by Kevin Fielder, SISO of Just Eat. Kevin, thanks for joining us. No problem. Great to be here. So, Kevin, you've been talking a bit about the need for security professionals to get out of the echo chamber. Uh, if you follow Kevin on LinkedIn, you may have seen his post on the subjects. Uh, we will link that in the episode notes. Um, but I just wanted to dig a bit more into the thinking behind that. So when you talk about the the echo chamber of security, what do you mean? So we spend an awful lot of time as security pros talking to other security pros. And then we go to a security conference and talk to an audience of mostly security people about security. And obviously one of the big topics that comes up is the people elements and how you get engagement across your organization and how you get people to care more about security and get more engagement and more cultural change and all of those good things, which are great. But you're talking to them with people who all agree. And what we don't do a great good job of is getting outside of that. So how do I, how do we get us as security people to go and talk about, especially the people and cultural side of things, to HR conferences or finance conferences or whatever else, and, and ideally get ourselves in as kind of a early on keynote, not the 5 p.m. on the last day slot where everyone, <laughs> no one's listening. Uh, and the kind of analogy is, imagine if you walked into a room of people to you know talk about security strategy in your organization or talk about some initiative you want to do or whatever else. And they were already talking about security and they already got it a little bit. And they mm. were already like, oh yeah, I went to this conference last week and this person spoke about this and why that's important. And you've already started, you've already kind of won the initial engagement piece because we've already been talking to them at events they go to. Mm. So it's more, it's just getting outside that, not just in your organization, but how do we get outside of the, you know, and I think probably most fields do that, right? You probably, whatever field you're in, you spend a lot of time going to events for people in your field, mm. as opposed to going to events for other people who might need to care about your field or understand your field. This makes me uh, think actually of something that we, a news story that we had on the podcast last week about people feeling effectively a bit resentful of red teams, you know, when they're being targeted, they feel that they're, you know, their own company is trying to trick them. Do you think that more engagements such as like you are talking about right now would perhaps um, make people more understanding of why they are being tricked? Absolutely. And I think it's also that's also partly how you do it in your organization as well right so it's understand helping people understand that it's not it's not blaming them it's finding out how we can be better so a lot of that's kind of the cultural you know how security tells people off you know like i'm i'm not a big fan of phishing campaigns in a lot of ways because lots of people use them as a punishment how ah, you click the link you're terrible and it's mm. we've had this you know talking about our colleagues and our friends as users and that kind of stuff has been such a historical thing that you know, it's, we're moving away from it, but it still floats around. Um, and I think that's a shocking attitude because um, people will always be tricked. The right crafted social engineering or phishing email will trick people in my team, will trick mm. me. Um, so we need to work on how as an organization we get people to care more, we get people to ask the right questions and we educate them. So if you get caught out, 
we educate how we do things better and work with people how we do things better. That's you near. Know, it's no secret. Every single company that does red team tests has a hundred percent record. All of the good ones walk in with a we win every single time. The only question is if they get in on hour one, day one, day two, week one, whatever. Mm. It's just how long it takes them to do it. So they always win. Yeah. Nobody's infallible when it comes to security. No, absolutely. So it's how do we get better? And I think we overcomplicate it a lot as well. So for people, you know, I, I use the kind of finance analogy, right? I can work a spreadsheet and I understand my budget. But if I want to do things to the complex finance spreadsheets and how that all works, I go and sit with someone in finance. Mm. They don't expect me to know the ins and outs of exactly what we can, CapEx versus OpEx, or all the legal rules around it, because that's their job. Mm. So they expect me to know enough to come and chat to them and to be able to do math, mm. right? With security, we should expect the same. So we should expect to work with people across our organization and get them to care about, should I click on that thing? Or oh, I've had an unusual request for a money transfer. I'm going to phone up the CFO rather than just do it. Mm. Those little basics, you know, I'll clear my desk. I'll have a unique password. I'll be happy to use 2FA where my organization says use it in certain cases because I understand that it makes sense to. And again, sort of, you know, three, five, six key messages and just keep chipping away at that and keep trying to get the engagement and don't expect people to be security experts because that's not their job. Mm. So what would you say are the kind of first steps to achieving that? Um, I think it's being approachable. It's going out, um, yeah, having coffees with people, getting to know people, understanding their problems um, and looking at, at their goal, right? So one thing you know, I'm quite open about is, is most organizations that are not security firms have security teams because there's bad people. If there's no bad people and no one made mistakes, you wouldn't need a security team. Mm. So we're not necessarily a core part of the business's goal. You start a business because, you know, in Just Eat's case, we want to give amazing food experiences or whatever. So we all want to do, an organization has has key goals and we want to enable them to do it securely, but we have to engage with the business. We can't be that security says no, security is a toll gate, security wants more and more process. We have to be, how can we help you do things faster and safer? So a lot of it's how we engage as a team and how we make, you know, it's, it's like being kind of a product organization effectively. How do I ensure that every touch point of my team is a positive one? So that when someone talks to my team, they go off and say, hey, security, help me. You should probably chat to them and get that kind of thing going. So it's just, yeah, be engaging, be helpful um, and run around talking to people. Mm. Just get yourself out there. Um, I have someone in my team whose sole job is culture. So their only job is how do we get cultural change in the organization? How do we engage people? How do you roll out programs that engage and get people to care about what we do and get people to talk to us? So I think it's a really important pillar of what we do. Is that a role that you would encourage other businesses to put into their security team then, you know, as well as the security people, have somebody who is the liaison between security and other business units? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have, you know, every everyone in my team talks to other people. It should have one some, one person who's, you know, and I, I would like more if I could get more, obviously, but their role is purely to do that piece and to, to push our training out and to look at how we do things and to work with our internal comms teams on things that go on the internet and all of those kind of things. I think it's really important. I have, you know, I have five pillars in my strategy because no one likes more than five strategic pillars, but one of those <laughs> is culture. So one of the five pillars I have across the entire security program is how we do cultural change, how we engage with everyone from engineers to people in the call center to the exec. Um, so I think, yeah, having that as part of what you do and part of what you tell your organization you're trying to achieve is really important. So in terms of establishing those kind of touch points, what are the kind of 
the key strategies that organizations can use to bridge those divides within the organization you know because i think a lot of a lot of people within the business that aren't kind of in security or it or working with them on a regular basis can see security as just something that that happens that aren't really there to be interacted with yeah, so I mean, it's yeah, it's not something that you're going to change overnight. It's a you know, it's a whole program, and cultural change is is long and hard, right? But um, fundamentally, it's how do you make it personal to them? So find out what people care about, whether it's business wise or or home wise. You know, if you're if you're if if you get people to understand having you know different passwords for all their accounts, making sure they're using two FA, make sure they've turned on auto updates on their home machines, those kind of things, um, and let, explain to them how it could impact them if you. Know, you don't want your Facebook taken over or your Snapchat or whatever you use. Um, they then go, okay, that's that's they get that because it can impact them. And then they bring that into work. So you can actually, by making it kind of something that's meaningful to them, whether that's you know, impact to work or impact to personal life or both, those, those same, same key points are true everywhere. So kind of being safe online and being secure and sensible management of accounts and documents and whatever else applies everywhere. So just find ways to make it personal. Um, another thing that my team did that I was really proud of was we recently um, chose a new training provider for kind of secure coding. Um, but rather than us just go, hey, engineers, there's a new thing, go use it. We had engineers proof of concept, the solutions we were considering and score them. And one that I thought oh. wouldn't win did win. So we rolled out the solution that the engineers chose. So get people engaged in even things like that. So mm. you've got an engineering community who've now getting a, a, a training solution rolled out to them that they chose. Mm. That they said, this is the one we like using best. We find the capture the flag stuff and the other things it does the most interesting. So so engage people in every every part of that process rather than being a security team telling, have security team working with you. And I think especially in organizations like ours that are very kind of agile, DevOps, empowered teams um, across the whole organization, not just in engineering, mm. um, it's very easy for people to go around you. Yeah. So, so the, the less, the more agile and the faster your organization is, the easier it is for people to go around security. So you need to be at that conversation at the start and you need to be seen as helping them do things better. Um, and every time you do that once, every win you get, you get a advocate who then tells other people in the team that was a good interaction. They helped us. It meant when we got to signing legal docs and got to going live, the go live was really smooth because like, yes, everyone's proved it. It's all good. Mm. So, yeah. So in terms of the split between culture and practices, yeah. if you like, which would you say is the the most important element for an organization to tackle first in this journey? By practices, do you mean kind of like process and, and toll gates and those? Yes. Our culture, culture every day of the week. Um, you can enforce a lot of stuff, but if you enforce it, people don't like it. Um, or people will try to go around it or people will resent it because you're slowing them down. If you get the cultural piece where people care and want to engage, you know, it may it may not tick as many boxes from a kind of an audit point of view or whatever else, but having a culturally engaged organization, I think that's far safer and far more important to do in security than having too many tick boxes. Okay. One thing I was going to say was actually just touching back onto your um, news story. So another mm. thing I'm really passionate about is kind of doing the fundamentals. 
So we often call them basics, but basics doesn't mean easy. So I try and say fundamentals when I remember. Um, but that story about Equifax, not blaming Equifax or anyone else, but is is so true. Even if you are the target of a nation state who has a back pocket full of zero days and APTs and whatever else, they won't waste them. Mm. If I've got a zero day and I use it, it's no longer a zero day. So they will always try, no matter who your adversary is, they will try the simple way to get in first and only step up to really intelligent ways when the simple ways don't work. Mm. So regardless of who your organization is, do the fundamentals and focus on that. Exactly. Everything else. Because I mean, you know, with Equifax, it was the Chinese military, but it could just as easily have been some script kitty from Michigan, you know? Yeah, but and the point is, even though it was the, the Chinese military, they still use the simple things first. Exactly. They always will. Yeah. So, Kevin, if we're talking about you know, breaking out of the bubble, one of the security industry's chief you know, sins and loves is uh, FUD. You know, we love a bit of the, or the security industry loves a bit of the old, you know, it's like a war and it's all terrible and that kind of thing. Is this something that's isolating? Do we need to you know, maybe hang that up on the on the shelf and move on from trying to scare everyone, including ourselves, um, and you know, become a bit less militaristic or, or you know, in the trenches? Oh, absolutely. I think being realistic is is gets you much more buy-in. Um, every time you go, the world's going to end, this is terrible, and it doesn't, you lose credibility. Mm. Um, and people get tired of it, and everyone's seen it. It's, there's, there's breach weariness, effectively. You know, there's another billion records on this breach, and hundreds of millions on that breach, and whatever else. And it, it's time to move away from that and talk about building trust. We want to be a trusted organisation that keeps the data of our our customers and our partners safe. Um, we want to be a brand that people look to and think is an awesome brand, and part of that is trust. So work on trust and work on doing the right thing. Um, and stop using scaremongering to try and get buy-in. You know, I've, mm. I don't think I've ever gone into the board or whatever and said, oh, we have to do this because of breach X. You know, I would much rather talk about we want to be a trusted brand, we want to maintain our reputation, we want to do great things for our customers um, and be part of that. Then you become part of the kind of business and organisational discussion about how you do awesome things as opposed to the guy in the corner that's shouting about the world coming to an end. So absolutely. I think a, a lot of that comes down to the fact that with security in particular it's kind of hard to get tangible wins you know i mean su success for the security department in most cases just means everything carries on as normal right you know how do you demonstrate that you're succeeding if it looks like every other day yeah, I mean, that's security ROI is super hard. Mm. And we spend a lot of time talking about you know, risk reduction and quantitative scoring and all of these things. Um, and that is important to talk about what your goals are. And so you talk about your goals and where, what you're trying to achieve. And it's more about how, how you get towards those goals. You agree the goals with, with the organization. Um, and that you know, maybe you know, that's going to be kind of very high level stuff around kind of maturity and how well you're doing things. But underneath that, you can have some figures. So how well maintained is your environment? How good is your asset inventory? Whatever else. You kind of have a bunch of data that supports I understand the environment. I know what's going on. Um, and that leads to the, the conversation around this is how we protect a brand and how we protect our customers. Um, and it's much more about the protection piece um, and kind of what I worked back to before. So you agree agree things around being trusted, doing being protect, uh, protecting our data um, and the maturity you want to get to and what's appropriate for your organization. So you agree that and then you kind of use some yeah there's some art and some science but how how you get towards those goals and is everyone still agreed on what those goals are I mean, you can talk about the key risks to your organization so is your organization what are the key risks in terms of um you know loss of data loss of 
um, ability to trade, whatever else, and you have key risks and you have risk appetite, which is always quite nebulous, but at least by having a risk appetite discussion, you can then get okay to be within your, your risk appetite and the tolerance of risk that you have. These are what we need to do to achieve that. And then you get agreement about you're going to do these key things to get to that risk tolerance. Before we wrap up, you know, we, for all this talk of breaking out of the bubble, you know, we are talking to security professionals and, you know, IT professionals. So for anyone that's listening that wants to start putting these kind of initiatives into practice, who is the first person within their organization that when they finish listening to this podcast, they should go and talk to to start reaching out? Probably the people team or the HR team, whatever they're called in your org, because they will know everyone and they're obviously going to own the kind of cultural agenda and training agenda across the organization. So engage with them and start talking to them about how you can work with them in internal comms on getting more stuff out there um, and understand who your key stakeholders are, right? So there's going to be, there's organizations always have a hierarchy. Mm. But they also have people who are really important culturally, who have may have been there for a long time, whatever else. So uh, I guess I'm kind of going to the second group now, but but kind of the HR people team, get engaged with them and how you engage with the organization and also find out who those kind of key people are, that are the, mm. the linchpins that have a lot of influence yeah. and work with them as well to get them on board. Excellent. Well, that's unfortunately all we've got time for. Uh, I know we could do another hour on this happily, but uh, sadly, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Cool. Thank you for having me. Cheers. You can find links to all of the topics we've spoken about today in the show notes and even more on our website, www.itpro.co.uk. You can follow IT Pro on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn and you can subscribe to the IT Pro newsletter for a daily dose of news. Speaking of subscriptions, don't forget to subscribe to the IT Pro podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever else you find podcasts to never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you choose as it really helps us out and helps more people discover it. We'll be back next week with more news and analysis from the world of IT. Until then, goodbye. See you later.